0: Second Thessalonians chapter one, beginning in verse six, it says, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation, those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven and his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling And fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The second letter of Paul to the Thessalonians begins with comfort in chapter one. It continues with correction in chapter two. It ends in, in concern in chapter three. Remember, Paul is encouraging them because they're under great pressure. They're suffering hardship. They're in the midst of immense persecution. And Paul has reminded them that suffering helps us grow in verses 3 through 5. And now Paul points out that suffering is going to prepare us for the glorious return of our Lord and Savior Jesus in verses 6 through 10. And that that suffering glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 11 and 12. So how in the world could suffering and persecution bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ? And clearly, the answer is one that is contrary to human thinking and worldly wisdom. We usually think of pain and we usually think of suffering and we usually think of hardship, not as the presence of God in our life, but the absence of God in our life. But Paul takes the opposite position. And he points out that our suffering, their suffering, our hardship, their hardship, our persecution, their persecution was evidence of God's presence in their lives. And when suffering is coupled with righteous endurance, that is perseverance under pressure, we begin to understand things that we never understood before. We understand about God's sovereignty, like it says in Romans eight twenty-eight, where it says that God is causing all things to work together for our good, for those who love him, who are the called according to his purposes. When, when we when we begin to understand that we are driven closer to God, like it says in first Peter, chapter four, verse 14, we're given insight into God's character and nature. Romans eight, verses 14 through 15, we become examples to a watching world, both to the unbeliever and the unbeliever, like it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter six, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians chapter one, verses six and seven. If you just turn a couple of pages back to 1 Thessalonians chapter one, where it says, and you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and the Kai who believe. It was Henry uh, Wadsworth Longfellow who wrote, we judge ourselves. By what we feel we're capable of doing. Others judge us by what we have done. We judge ourselves by what we feel capable of doing. Others judge us by what we have done. In moments of crystal clear clarity, we realize that our suspicions of others are usually aroused because of the knowledge of ourselves. You're most likely to believe the worst in others because of the worst in you. And you're likely to believe the best in others when you believe about the best in you. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about judgment. And clearly, judgment takes place in reference to time and to place and subject and results. The subject of judgment isn't one size fits all. As a matter of fact. There is a judgment that has already taken place, according to the Bible, on the cross of Calvary in John chapter five, verse 24, where it says that Jesus Christ has died for us and that we believe him and that our sins are forgiven over and over again. The, the testimony of the scriptures in John chapter twelve verse thirty one and second Corinthians chapter five verse twenty one in Galatians chapter three verse thirteen and first Peter chapter two verse twenty four at the cross at the cross judgment against Satan and his power over the believer was broken. The sins of the believer were judged and put away. If you have come into a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Your sins are forgiven in the book of Ephesians. It says you've been chosen, adopted and accepted in the beloved. But there's also a present judgment which is taking place daily in the life of the believer. The continual ongoing judgment must be going on or there will be judgment from God because of the consequent failure to grow and mature in peace. And so there's a constant and continual judging of sin as it comes up in the believer's life. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-7, through seven, and we, then we begin to understand something, that just because we're a believer doesn't mean that we're not challenged with sin. But the Bible gives us this great declaration that if we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there is a past judgment and there is a present judgment, but there's also a future judgment of the saints. It's called the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ. It was used in the New Testament that speaks of a reference to the believers works. It's not about salvation. The issue has already been resolved in Second Corinthians, chapter five. Verse one and verse five and verse seven and verse nine and in first Corinthians chapter four and verse five, it says that those who are judged shall have the praise of God. Now, that's not true of the wicked. This is a judgment, not a destiny. It's a judgment for adjustment. It's a judgment for reward or loss according to our works. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that each man and each woman will stand before God. And each man and each woman will stand before Christ and give an account of their life. We're saved by grace. Some people think that the presence of grace is permission for the absence of obedience. But clearly, the Bible encourages us to read God's word and believe God's word and submit to the authority of God's word and the commands of God's word. And so there's a future judgment that includes the nations in Matthew 25, 31. There's an event called the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20, where the dead are are raised from every generation and are judged. It's been called the judgment of the dead. And it would appear that the judgment of the nations is handed out to the living and the great white throne judgment is handed out for the dead. Other judgments include the nation Israel in Ezekiel chapter 20, the judgment of fallen angels, even by believers in Jude chapter 6 and 2 Peter chapter 2. So, Why? Why will there be a judgment? Look at verse six. It says, since it is a righteous thing, which God with God to repay with tribulation, those who trouble you. The righteous judgment of God is seen in two ways. Punishment for the persecutors. But rest for the persecuted. The simple answer to the question is. Why will there be a judgment? Is because an innocent party has been offended by a guilty party. That's usually when judgment always takes place. An innocent party has been offended by a guilty party. And Paul embraces a play on words to make a point. Tribulation and trouble are related words in the original language. The noun is. The verb is flebo. It's hard to say, especially if you have a tough time with TH. People in England, you know, the Cockney people who use the F, they say F for, for foes and for kings coming. They, instead of saying TH, they say F. And this particular word, the literal meaning is to press. Philipsis. It was used in the ancient world to describe the pressing or the crushing of grapes. You guys have all heard the song. My eyes have seen the coming, the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the grapes of wrath. That's the image. There's a. It means to crush. The literal meaning is to press with crushing pressure, and so it's translated trouble or afflict or distress. And so Paul writes, it's a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Let me ask you a kind of a hard question. You don't have to answer it out loud. Have you ever said to anyone at any time, I'm going to make life miserable for you? You may not have even said it out loud. Or maybe someone has said it to you. Has anyone ever said to you, continue down that road and I am going to make life miserable for you? In Acts chapter 17, in verses 5 through 8, the surrounding circumstances at Thessalonica, we've read it many times, but it bears repeating again. In Acts chapter 17, verse 5, it says, but the Jewish leaders were jealous So they gathered some worthless fellows from the streets to form a mob and start a riot. They attacked the home of Jason, searching for Paul and Silas so that they can drag them out into the crowd. Not finding them there, they dragged out Jason and some of the other believers instead and took them before the city council. Paul and Silas have turned the rest of the world upside down, and now they're here disturbing our city, they shouted. And Jason has led them into his home. They are all guilty of treason against Caesar for they profess allegiance to another king, Jesus, the people of the city as well as the city officials were thrown into a turmoil by all of these reports. In Acts chapter 17 verse 3 it says, but when some Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, they went there and they stirred up trouble. Here's the idea. Wherever Paul and Silas and Timothy would go, these people would come and they would follow them and they would say, I'm going to make life miserable for you here and I'm going to make life miserable for you there. I'm going to follow you and I'm going to persecute you and I'm going to afflict you and I'm going to make life miserable for you. And there were people who were making life miserable for the believers. Just like there are some people who make life miserable for you. It could be someone as close as your husband or your wife or your children or your immediate family. People come to you and they say, you're such a ridiculous Christian. You know, you're always opening up your Bible. You're praying. You're going to church. You know, get a life. You know what you are? You're the exact opposite of the life of the party. It can be as simple as hateful speech. It can be as simple as making your life miserable because just simply because you've decided to love and serve the Lord. Clearly, the purpose of judgment was to rectify injustice. God is a righteous God and sin will not go unpunished. God is a holy God and out of God's holiness comes his righteousness and justice. By the way, holiness is an expression of God's character. Justice and righteousness are expressed in the way that God deals with human beings. We can quickly say three things about the righteousness and justice of God. Number one, the imposition of righteousness by law and demands, which may be called legislative holiness and may be called the righteousness of God. In other words, the moment that God makes a declaration about anything and he says that something is true and good and right. Human beings have the opportunity to say, it's not true, it's not good, and it's not right for me. Then there's the executing of penalties attached to those laws, which is called judicial holiness. And number three, the sense in which the attributes and justice of God is carried out in the holy nature of God in the government of the world In the righteousness of God. We have his love of holiness and in the justice of God, we have his hatred of sin. And this becomes a huge and terrible problem for the people in the world because they quite literally do not believe that God is holy. And they believe that their sin doesn't matter. You know, Aesop's fables were written by a slave. Some of you grew up with Aesop's fable as a kid. Sidney Harris wrote, quote, only those who chronically suffer injustice can have a true insight into what justice consists of. When it happens to us, we want when we do something to someone else, we want Mercy. When it happens to us, we want. That's how we really begin to understand right and wrong and good and evil. You never understand just how wrong adultery is until it's happened to you. You never understand how wicked theft is until they break into your home and they steal your stuff. You never understand how horrible violence is until someone has raised their fists to your wife and your children and, and pummeled them. You never understand how wicked and heinous and horrible sexual assault is until your child has been the victim of sexual assault. You never understand how egregious lying is until someone lies to you. We tend to minimize our own sin and magnify the sin of others. People who have a wrong view of judgment have a wrong view of justice. But a world in which justice was not done at last would not be God's world at all. And you're making a terrible, terrible, terrible mistake. If you think that a holy and a righteous God won't undo all of the wickedness at some point. And the pain and the persecution and the suffering and the trauma was horrific. And so Paul gives a word of encouragement. But he also gives a word of warning as well. God is righteous. God is just. God is going to reward the righteous and God is going to punish the unrighteous. All unjust behavior of men will bear the terrible judgment of God, whether it's murder or mocking or cursing or criticizing or defrauding or ridiculing or fighting or arguing or misusing or rejecting or ignoring or cheating or abusing or stealing or deceiving or lying or hoarding. The list could go on and on and on. Williams translates verse six. Indeed, it is right for God to repay with crushing sorrows, those who cause you these crushing sorrows. Another translation, Beck says, it really is just for God to pay back with suffering those who make you suffer. But even now, even now there are some of you who don't believe that sentence at all. How could that possibly be true? The only way it could possibly be true is if God is, in fact, holy and just. Most unbelievers don't believe that, by the way. And some believers are even reluctant to accept it. But the Bible makes it clear that God would not be just if he failed to ignore Or overlook even one sin. In Psalm 96, verse 13, the psalmist writes, For He is coming, for He is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with His truth. And in verse 7, look what it says. And to give you who are troubled rest with us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, the last time the world had seen Jesus, the last glimpse of Jesus was when he was being driven to a Roman cross, when he was being crushed with Roman whips, when he was placed on a piece of wood, when nails suspended his arms and his legs and he Hung between heaven and Earth, the last time that they saw him, his face was beaten and bruised and mutilated. But the man on the cross would soon become the man on the throne. Who will judge? The man on the cross will also become the man on the throne. And clearly, Jesus will... judge and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. It's not going to be Buddha and it's not going to be Muhammad, and it is not going to be this present government. It is not going to be any government in the past or in the future, but rather the government of Christ. Jesus is not simply judge, but he comes to execute judgment and Jesus comes to give. Look what it says. Rest to the believer but retribution to the unbeliever and the make-believer. The believer is released from injustice and suffering. You know, there's an ancient old commentary called the pulpit commentary. And this is one of those few times when it has some interesting things to say. It says, heaven is rest to the weary, freedom to the enslaved, release from sorrow and suffering and pain, relaxation from toil, the quiet heaven of peace after being tossed about in the tempestuous ocean of this world. Now, at first glance, when you read verse seven, where it says, and to give you who are troubled rest, it looks like a verb. But it's not. It's a noun. Anises. Here literally it means. A loosening. A relaxation. Relief. Have you ever been strangled? Not maybe literally, but there was something that was binding you and then all of a sudden it's released. That's the idea. One Greek scholar translate this grant in turn. Rest to those who are or oppressed, or we might say relief. The point, here's the point that Paul is trying to make. When the enemies of God are experiencing judgment, the saints are going to be experiencing rest. Here's the point. I hurt right now. Paul is saying, I understand. You hurt right now temporarily, but you'll rest forever. They're hurting you right now, but they're going to be tormented forever. Jesus is going to personally return to the earth and judge the nations. And by the way, there's two words that use that are used in the New Testament to describe the revelation of Jesus or the coming of Jesus. The most popular word is a word called parousia, and the word parousia means the presence. It is the presence of Jesus in a literal sense. Right at this very moment, Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father. We sense his presence. We know that God is real and that Jesus is real. But there will come a time when the literal presence of Jesus will return. The second one is apocalypsi. You know that word apocalypse. Or apocalyptic, it's the word that's translated Revelation, and here the word is apocalypsi. It means to uncover or unveil. Parousia usually talks of the presence of Jesus in comfort, in friendship, in fellowship, and apocalypsi is the word to describe his presence in judgment. The day is coming when Jesus will tear not just a tiny hole, but a significant rip in the heavens, and he will return to the earth in judgment. Hundreds of years ago, Matthew Henry described it. He will come in all the pomp and power of the upper world, unquote. The one who is revealed from heaven is the one who is fit to judge according to the New Testament because he's the son of man and he's the son of David. And because he's the son of man and the son of David, he knows the truth about what it means to be a human being. He knows all of the trials and temptations and tests and circumstances, but because he's the son of God, he has absolute understanding of each and every person's circumstance and is unable to make a mistake. And because of that, he can render a just verdict. And he comes with his mighty angels. When you go to a court, there's a bailiff and the bailiff is there to make sure that what the judge says goes. And if for whatever reason you overcome the bailiff, there's a whole police department. And if for whatever reason you're able to overcome the whole police department, then there's several police departments. And if you are somehow able to overcome all of the police departments, then there's an army that will come and take you away. But not one of you or all of you. If you took the sum and the substance of the collective ability of all human beings who have ever lived or who ever will live. They would not be able to stand against even one angel. If for whatever reason we as a church decided, "Okay, send us an angel from heaven, bring it on. Yeah, that would be a huge mistake. The time of God's righteous retribution is at the revelation or the unveiling of Jesus, and look what it says: He comes from heaven with angels in flaming fire. Look what it says in Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse eight: Who shall be judged in flaming fire? Taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're one of those people who underlines your Bible, this is one you want to underline. Why? Look what it says. Paul reminds the believers that God is righteous in verse 6, that God is wrathful in verse 8, that God is good in verse 11. In the next chapter, in chapter 2, verse 16, we know that God is loving. But when the Lord Jesus exacts vengeance, it's not vindictiveness, but righteous recompense. Jesus isn't simply getting even. But rather, he's handing out punishment based on his holy and righteous and just character. And who will be judged? Read it for yourself in verse 8. Even though you may not believe me, look what it says. Those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll read it again. Those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know God? If you do not know God, it's really important that you read on me. And for those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand what that means? Do you understand what it means to know and obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? A.W. Tozer writes, and I quote at length because it's so rich. The Bible knows nothing of salvation apart from obedience. Paul testified that he was sent to preach obedience to the faith among all nations, he reminded the Roman Christians that they had been set free from sin because they had obeyed from their heart that form of doctrine which we delivered you, unquote. In the New Testament, there's no contradiction between faith and obedience, between faith and law works, yes, between law and grace, yes, but between faith and obedience, not at all. The Bible recognizes no faith that does not lead to obedience, nor does it recognize any obedience that, that does not spring from faith. The two are opposite sides of the same coin. When were we to split a coin edgewise, we would destroy it. Destroy both sides and render the whole thing valueless. So faith and obedience are forever joined, and each one is without value when separated from the other. The trouble with many of us today is that we're trying to believe without intending to obey. You might be saying that. I'm trying. I'm trying to believe. I'm trying to believe. I want to believe. I'm trying to believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord. I'm trying to believe that the Bible is true. I'm trying to believe that the Bible is true. I'm trying to believe that what the Bible says is true about Jesus' death and Jesus' life and Jesus' resurrection. I'm trying to believe it. I want to believe it, but you have no intention whatsoever of obeying the Gospel. You'll get up out of your seat, you'll leave this building, you'll go outside these walls, you'll get into your car, you'll drive to wherever it is that you're going and you'll fall into the same trap that you've been living in, because guess what? There are two kinds of people who are listening to this message. Those who know God and who believe and obey the gospel and those who do not know God and who do not believe and obey the Bible. Those who do not know God are those who have rejected the knowledge of the true and the living God revealed in nature and conscience. Those who do not know God are the people that Paul talks about in the book of Romans chapter one and two, these are the people who look out into all of creation, who see the moon and the sky and the sun and the stars. They look out on the creation and then they lie to themselves and they say there's really no creator. These are the people who have a conscience, who know the difference between right and wrong, who know that lying and cheating and stealing is wrong. They know it because they've experienced it for themselves, but then they decide in their heart to ignore their own conscience and do exactly what they want. Those who have not obeyed the gospel are simply those not who have heard the gospel, but who have heard it over and over and over again and who willfully and continually reject it. These are the people who go into church Every Sunday and sit in the seat like a dutiful husband or wife and get up out of their seat and leave because it goes in one ear and out the other in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. Read me or you. If you live an extravagant charade. The New Testament reminds us what the gospel is. It's not simply a statement of facts to be believed about a real person. The gospel is not simply a group of historical information to be believed, but it's a real person to be obeyed. Belief in the New Testament also carries the idea of not simply agreeing with the content of what's being said, but also obeying. Paul points out in Romans 3.23... All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God, pointing out the human need. In Romans six twenty three, Paul says, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's rightly been called sin's penalty. Paul also talks about God's provision in Romans chapter five, verse eight. It says, but God, but God, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Romans ten nine, Paul calls his reader to a response. He says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The Bible teaches that God loves us. And wants to know us. God loves us and wants to know us and experience fellowship with Him so that we can worship Him and know Him. We've sinned against God. Our sins separate us from God. This separation eventually leads to death and judgment, but God has orchestrated all of human history to the coming of Jesus, the perfect life of Jesus, the death of Jesus on the cross, the resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins so that we can cross a bridge There are people who will say, I don't believe you. I don't believe that the Bible is true. I don't believe that Jesus is Lord. I don't believe that he will judge me. I don't believe he will judge anyone. But look what it says in Second Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When Charles Haddon Spurgeon was instructing his students who were filling a pulpit, he said that when you spoke of heaven, your face should shine. And when you speak of hell, your regular face will do. You know, we laugh, but it is hard. It's hard to keep a straight face. It's hard to speak of hell and not weep and cry. Look carefully at the expression. These shall be punished. In the Greek, it's a combination of a verb and a noun. It's utterly almost unique. The verb is tino, and it's used only here in the Greek New Testament, and it means to pay. And dike, it has an interesting history given by there. It means custom or usage, then right or justice. Then it came to have the technical meaning of a, a lawsuit. The next step was a judicial hearing, a judicial decision, and then more precisely the sentence of condemnation. The final step was the execution of the sentence. So the noun and the verb together meant to pay the penalty to the fullest. Or suffer punishment. And the judicial sense is. Ever. Ever. Everlasting destruction from the presence, literally the face of the Lord. The wicked are punished with everlasting destruction. By the way, the word everlasting is the exact same word used to describe everlasting life. The same word is used here. If everlasting life goes on forever and ever. And so does everlasting punishment. You know, to learn how Americans felt about prayer, Life Magazine many years ago interviewed dozens of people. And one of the people they talked to was a prostitute. She was 24 years old in White Pine County, Nevada. Quote, I don't think about my feelings a lot, she said. Instead, I lie in my bed and I think on him. I meditate because sometimes my words don't come out right, but he can find me. He can find what's going on inside of me just by listening to my thoughts. I ask him to help me and keep me going. A lot of people think working girls don't have any morals or any religion, but I do. I don't steal and I don't lie. And the way I'm looking at it, he's not going to judge me. I don't think God judges anybody. Unquote. Few notions are more comforting than the idea that God judges no one. The problem? That soothing, calming idea is utterly, completely, totally Unequivocally false. And when will the judgment take place? Look at verse 10. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired. Among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed and to be admired means to marvel at. The verb is very interesting. It's translated uh, 30 times marvel, 14 times it's it's translated wonder. But here it seems to have the idea of admiration and again it's not the usual meaning the phrase most often was a wonder or amazement at the miracles of Jesus in the New Testament but here the idea is this overwhelming admiration that comes in the reality that you know that everything that was said about the Bible and about Jesus is true and look what Paul says because our testimony among you was believed. And what was Paul's testimony? I was a persecutor. Here's his testimony. I was a religious person. I was not just a religious person. I was the most religious person that you ever met. I was a religious person who went to the temple. I was a religious person who read the Bible in the original language. I, I was a person who thought that he loved God. And I was a person who thought that he knew God. And I was a person who became angry at the idea that Jesus was the Messiah and that people would leave Judaism and embrace Jesus. I was a person who found people, who hounded people, who beat people, and who participated in their incarceration, in their torture, and in their death. And then Jesus showed up. A voice from heaven asked me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? And I asked, Who are you? And he said, I'm Jesus. And I was blind. And I had to have someone take me by the hand and lead me into Damascus. And a man named Ananias prayed for me and he laid hands on me and my eyes were opened and I began to understand that everything that the Bible said about the Messiah, how He would be born from David's lineage, how he would be born of a virgin and all of the miracles that he performed and all of the things that he said and all of the things that he did and that his death on the cross and his resurrection, the fact that he could come back to life, that he could bring me new life. That was his testimony and that was what was believed. Paul's testimony was if Jesus can change somebody like me, he can change somebody like you. That's the testimony. It's the testimony of a changed life. And then Paul writes about how you can escape that judgment. Look what it says in verse 11. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. And that the work of faith with power, the Lord God is the one who makes you worthy. It's his pleasure and goodness of faith with power that belongs to all who know and love Jesus. A person, a person, a person can escape the judgment by believing and receiving Jesus. I read a story about how you can get a great parking space at, at the New York Yankees baseball game. One man thought he had found a way. He, he pulled his car into the VIP parking lot. This VIP stands for Very Italian Parking. No, it doesn't. It's, you know, it's very important parking. He pulls his car into the parking lot and he casually told the attendant that he was a close personal friend of George Steinbrenner. Who was the owner of the Yankees. Unfortunately for the imposter, the, the person attending the parking lot that day was George Steinbrenner. He was doing some personal investigation of traffic problems at the stadium. So the guy rolls down his window. Here's George Brenner in a parking lot attendant out And he goes, I'm close, personal friends with George Steinbrenner. i want to ask you a question. Do you think he got into the lot? Do you think he ever got into the lot? There are going to be people who say, I went to church. I read my Bible. Maybe I wasn't as evil as Jeffrey Dahmer. You know, I didn't cut people's heads off and put it in the refrigerator. Now, that's a wicked person. Now, clearly, I am no Mother Teresa. But I'm no Jeffrey Dahmer. It's true that God grades on a curve, right? It only takes one sin to disqualify you from heaven. And that's why Jesus died for all your sins. In verse 12, it says that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What should be my proper reaction to suffering? Paul reminds us to thank God for salvation and the presence of God in our lives and to not refuse or despise suffering, to weigh our current suffering against the coming glory. In Romans eight eighteen, it says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. Disobedience brings chastening. You know, in the spring of 95, there was a columnist named Charles Krauthammer who wrote an article explaining why the 94 baseball strike dealt a fatal blow to many fans. The cancellation of the World Series reduced the entire 94 season to meaninglessness, a string of exhibition games masquerading as a championship season. No championship, no season. He writes The real scandal of the 94 season is not the games that were canceled, but the games that were played. The whole season was a phony. The fans who invested dollars and enthusiasm and the expectation that winners and losers, homers and averages would count, were cheated, more than cheated. By canceling the season in a dispute over money, the players and owners mocked the fan who really cared whether Ken Griffey broke Roger Maris's record or Tony Gwynn hit 400. He writes, hitting records in the World Series give meaning to the regular season. You know what I thought? Judgment day gives meaning to life. Judgment day means your life matters. What you say and what you do and what you believe matters. everything that you say and everything that you do, your life doesn't matter if there is no judgment day. If Jesus Christ is not who he says he is. If what you say and if what you do and if what you believe doesn't really matter, Matter then you can continue to do whatever it is that you're doing. Believe whatever it is that you're believing. But if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know God, like the poor guy who tried to sneak in to the parking lot at Yankee Stadium. There's no way that you'll be able to stand before the true and the living God and remain in hiding. Remain a fraud. Remain an imposter. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. Lord, I pray for the person who, for whatever reason, has come to a place and and an acknowledgement where they realize that they don't know you and they've never obeyed the gospel of Jesus and that they want to know you and they want to obey the gospel of Jesus. They're willing to acknowledge that they're a sinner in need of a savior. They're willing to admit there's something empty. And there's something wrong. And Lord, I pray for that person right now. I pray that you would extend the invitation to their heart. Lord, I pray that they would sense your presence and in the invitation even as I'm speaking. I want to know you. And I don't want to reject, but rather I want to accept the gospel of Jesus. Lord, they know who they are. And they know the circumstance of their heart. And in a moment, Lord, I'm going to ask them to get up out of their seat, and I'm going to ask them to stand right here in front of this pulpit, so that they can do business with God, so that they don't have to stand in that place of fraud and imposture. Lord, I would like to be able to introduce them to you and to the Lord Jesus so that they could not just know about you, but really know you and walk in true repentance and true friendship and true fellowship and true worship because you love us so much. Lord, I pray that even now, as you extend the invitation, that they would know in their heart, I'm that person. I need to come forward. I need to pray that prayer. I need to take the journey from darkness into light. I need to know that I know that I know you. I'm going to have you stand right now and we're going to sing this closing song. And if that's you, I want you to come forward. Hey, guess what? There is nothing embarrassing. The most embarrassing thing that could happen is that you find yourself in heaven's parking lot with Jesus as the attendant. That's the most embarrassing thing that could happen. Come here. Come down. And I'll pray. Even as we sing, come on down.